Welcome to Open Your Eyes. This is a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and the tools to grow and change. And I'm so glad you're here and hope today is a real learning experience for you. Today, I'd like to talk about getting out of the murky middle of things. The relatively narrow body of oceans separating Great Britain from the rest of Europe is famously called the English Channel. It's about 150 miles wide at its widest and 21 miles wide at its narrowest point, which is called the Strait of Dover. It is the busiest shipping lane in the world, and the strait is particularly prone to strong currents and countercurrents. But despite the currents and the shipping traffic, swimming the English Channel has been the quest for many long-distance swimmers. The first woman to swim the English Channel was Gertrude Ederly. She was born in 1906 in Manhattan. She won the gold medal in the 24 Olympics, and she had two swims in her sights after the Olympic Games, the 22-mile swim from Battery Park to Sandy Hook in New York and the English Channel. Now, Ederly's Sandy Hook swim record stood for 81 years, and her English Channel swim record stood for 23. Now, both of these records were eventually broken by Australian long-distance swimmer Tammy Van Visa. One of Tammy's most famous world record swims was the Murray River, which is 1,514 miles long, and she swam the Murray River upstream. Tammy's been a world record holder for the Battery Park Swim, the fastest person to swim the Gibson Lakes, the Cook Strait, the Loch Ness, the Bass Strait, and the English Channel. She's a friend of mine, and Tammy would often say, whenever I'd hear her speak, knowing your destination is half the journey. You see, during her record-breaking swims, the difficulty would always set in. She would get stung by jellyfish, the choppy waters made breathing difficult, the currents took her off course, and the cold and fatigue were crippling. But throughout the swim, she sees in her mind's eye the destination, and it's this image that pulls her through. Have you ever attempted something difficult only to be stung by the words of critics or family members? Have you ever gotten started only to hit the choppy waters of people telling you no, taking away your oxygen and your energy? If so, then take a lesson from something that marathoners in and out of the water know all too well. You have to see, imagine, and hold on to your destination. Like Tammy, Florence Chadwick was a long-distance swimmer. And in 1952, she was attempting to swim the 26 miles from California to Catalina Island. Roughly 15 miles into her swim, a thick fog settled in. And the fog prevented her from seeing Catalina Island, which would have been perfectly visible without the fog. Her mother was in one of the boats following Chadwick, and she told her mother that she didn't think she could finish the swim. Well, her mother encouraged her to continue, and Chadwick pressed on for one hour, but she finally relinquished. She was exhausted, and they pulled her on board the boat. And once on board, she discovered that she was less than a mile from shore. After the swim, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. Two months later, she attempted the swim again. This time she succeeded. It was on a clear day, and she went on to make uh, the Catalina Island swim two more times. Brian Tracy famously said, successful people have very clear goals. They know who they are and what they want, and they write them down and make plans for their accomplishments. Clarity is critical to your belief window and success. 
You see, a confused or unclear mind says no. And too often, we're stuck in the murky middle, unable to really decide because we haven't been clear. One of my favorite swimming stories happened recently. Sarah Thomas, an American swimmer, dove into the English Channel to set a new record, one never done by man or woman. The record? To swim the English Channel four times without stopping. Now, most remarkable was that Thomas made this decision to swim one year earlier while she was in the middle of treatment for breast cancer. You see, she said she needed something to pull her through what was the biggest challenge of her life and career. And the image, the challenge of the swim, pulled her through cancer first, and then the image of it pulled her through her swim. At 37 years old, following her cancer treatment, her body was in its weakest condition, Sarah was heavier than she'd ever been, and her life was in turmoil. But she set her sights on the swim and started training. Now, the swim would take 54 hours. That means she never left the water or stopped swimming for more than two days. She didn't sleep. She had a high-calorie protein drink every two hours. And yes, through the night and shifts in tides and currents, she swam. She finished at 6.30 a.m. after a night of dark, windy, choppy conditions. And most remarkable is when you look at the satellite map of her actual swim. As the crow flies, her swim would have been 84 miles. But because of the currents and tides, her swim was much longer. In fact, it ended up being 50 miles longer because she was swimming against the tide and the tide would take her completely off track. So instead of 84, she swam 134 miles. And if you look at her swim path, it looks like a huge S rather than a straight line. And it looks an awful lot like the path to any worthwhile goal. Those paths are rarely straight. Rarely do great things happen without currents and tides and jellyfish stings and redirecting your actions and course corrections. In fact, nothing in life that's worth doing is ever done without immense course corrections. So if it seems like you're swimming sideways without much progress, get clear about your goals. Adjust your stroke, take a few deep breaths, get some energy, and let's help you reach your goals because the fog will clear and the shore is closer than you think. There is power in you to do what you may not think is possible, but you got to get out of the murky middle. In higher education, the term murky middle is widely understood. It means the first-year students who end up with a GPA between 2.0 and 3.0. And it's the students in this situation who are the largest dropout group in higher ed. These make up more than half of all college dropouts. Students in this group are discouraged. They're unclear about their major. They haven't figured out the college routine, and they're at risk. And this is not unique to college students. We all get discouraged or are unclear about our goals or destination from time to time. And the result is we're in the murky middle. You know, we often get into the murky middle because of the procrastination trap. Well, you've been there. Letting opportunities pass you by day after day because you give into the choice of doing something easier or nothing until that becomes habit. I'm sure you've been in the procrastination trap before, and the result of that is you wind up in the murky middle of life. The word procrastination comes from the Latin word procrastinare, which means to put off until tomorrow. It also comes from the Greek word akrasia, meaning to do something against our better judgment. And the truth is, 
Giving into procrastination is not a matter of will. It has less to do with the strength of will and almost everything to do with our inability to manage negative moods around a particular task. It's not a character flaw you have, and it's not a time management problem. It's an emotion regulation problem. Here's what I mean. In a 2013 study, two British professors brought together the collective research done on procrastination and concluded one very important finding, that the way to overcome procrastination is not a matter of finding more self-will, but rather learning to deal with our immediate negative mood. Here's what they found. When we begin a certain task, especially one that is unpleasant at times, like cleaning a dirty bathroom or exercising or setting appointments for your new business, our mind, without our asking or consciously thinking, associates the thought of the task at hand negatively. When it makes that association, it immediately presents the feelings associated with it. And those feelings may be connected to our self-esteem. I'm not good at this. Our anxiety, this is too stressful. Or insecurity, I may not be successful at this today. For example, when it's time to exercise, the feelings you have are more complex than it's hard to do. Your brain is too complex for that. It associates the fact that you're a bit overweight and not happy with your body image, and it causes the feelings of failure or self-doubt or other emotions to come up to the surface. And this immediate rush of emotions does exactly the opposite of what you may think. It doesn't motivate you. It demotivates you. Now, the logical mind would say you need to lose that muscle, coronavirus muscle around your waist, so exercise. But not so. In some sort of negative association backlash, you feel the rush of emotion associated with those thoughts and your body wants immediate relief from the negative emotion. So what do you do? You put it out of your mind and you move on to something else with more positive feelings associated with it, like seeing funny social media posts or reading happy blogs. By pursuing the original goal, it only compounds the negative associations that you have with the task. And that's why you procrastinate. Because the stress and anxiety and low self-esteem and self-blame make all of those negative feelings come to the surface. So you procrastinate because you want immediate relief from those emotions. Now, what's harmful about procrastinating is that when you do, you're immediately rewarded for doing so because you get the immediate relief from those negative feelings. But the problem is a habit is now forming. A habit is formed by seeking immediate mood relief, and soon you can't break the habit. Researchers call this present bias, or our desire to prioritize our short-term emotional needs ahead of long-term goals. This is natural. It happens to all of us all the time. Research done by researchers at UCLA shows that when you think of our long-term goals, Our brains just think of it like when we think of strangers, meaning the same part of our brain that relates to strangers, the same part of our brain that relates to your long-term future. And the part of your brain that you use to avoid immediate negative emotion is a much more powerful part of your brain. So your brain is even fighting against you when it comes to procrastination. So how do you change the need for immediate relief from negative emotion and procrastination and latch onto the long-term emotion and vision of doing what you set out to do. Well, the first thing is be super compassionate with your procrastination of the past. Let it go. So what if you've not been stellar? 
This shift in thinking we're talking about today is powerful, and you're not going to let the behaviors of the past dictate your future. So if, if the recurring feelings of the past resurface every time, then you're sabotaged, right? So let them go. Remember, every breakthrough requires a break with. So here's the break with, and that's a break with the guilt and feelings of not having done what you set out to do in the past. The past is past. You don't have to live out of your past self. You live out of your future self. And this is really important thinking, and it requires deliberate thought. So our goal is to rise to a feeling that outweighs the negative short-term association uh, with the task, that emotion associated with the task at hand, and rise to a feeling of the long-term goal that outweighs that. This is an incredibly important principle that we need to learn. So let me teach how you do that. When my kids were younger, they had chores to do before school, and every morning was a battle to get them out of bed, and they didn't want to do it. Then one day, my son Jared signed up to be part of an elite basketball league, and their practices were early in the morning, and he loved the program, he loved the coach, and he loved the identity he felt with being there. And you know what? I never had to get him out of bed to go to basketball practice, never once, but I always had to battle to get him out of bed to do chores. You see, my son loved the feeling of being on the team, and he identified with it. After that, getting out of bed to do that was easy for him. Similarly, when you give in to that feeling of doing something you love, that you see as valuable or important, the voices of procrastination in your head are silenced because you have a greater emotional feeling for something that you love in the long term. Now, remember, no two things can occupy the same space at the same time. And this goes for the thoughts in our brain as well. So replace procrastinating emotions and thoughts with the thoughts of your higher cause that will free you from the procrastination trap. This means that what you're trying to do in the long term, you've really got to be in love with where you're headed and remind yourself of that emotion. Next. In order to overcome the procrastination trap, you need to reduce what you need to do every day to very clear, doable things, a doable schedule. Because when you're clear, things can change. My favorite story about getting out of the murky middle in life is about Joanne. Her father was an aircraft engineer working for Rolls-Royce in England. And there, Joanne and her younger sister, Diane, grew up attending St. Michael's Primary School. As a teenager, she loved to read books by Jessica Mitford, including the book Hans and Rebels. And when she was young, something just took root inside of her, and she knew she wanted to be a writer. Her dream was to publish a major work. She could sense that was her destiny. But it seemed there were always problems in her young life. Nothing came easy. Her teenage life was filled with strife. Her mother had multiple sclerosis and was often sick, and her father was angry and bitter, and she constantly fought with him. Her English teacher remembers she wasn't an exceptional student, but she was bright and good at English. And after graduation, Joanne applied to Oxford University. She always planned to attend Oxford. But in response to her application, all she received was a letter of denial. It was a devastating blow to Joanne, who always thought she'd attend Oxford. So she decided to study French and classics at the University of Exeter. And after graduation, she found work as a researcher for Amnesty International. Then another devastating blow. Her mother died. Now, her mother's death affected her deeply. 
So after a breakup with her boyfriend and her mother's death, she escaped to Portugal to teach English. There she met a man, they fell in love, and they were married, and they had a child together, a daughter. But then he turned abusive. And in 1993, after one especially bad night in which she dragged her out of their home, slapping her into submission in the street, she took her daughter and ran. And she went to live with her sister in Edinburgh, Scotland. Seven years after graduating from college, years wasted with no progress towards her dream, Joanne said, I am the biggest failure I know. Her marriage had failed. She was jobless. She was a single mother. Her dreams were nowhere in sight. She signed up for welfare benefits, and she suffered from deep depression and even contemplated suicide. She wondered, who am I? She had little sense of self. She felt like she was always on the verge of something great, but never able to overcome the trappings of everyday life and the procrastination that kept her from beginning her writing. Have you ever felt on the verge of doing something that you were meant to do, something great, but everyday life has you trapped? Or everyday procrastination is holding you back from what you feel you can and should do? Then take a lesson from Joanne. At this point in life, something changed in Joanne. She said, I stopped pretending I was anything other than what I was. I determined more than ever that I was going to do what I was meant to do, to write. I finally knew inside I was a writer. I was alive. I had a beautiful daughter and a typewriter. And she always knew she could do it. But for whatever reason, she hadn't. She had procrastinated. So with this in mind, each day she would walk her baby in the stroller to help her sleep and stop to write in the local cafe. First, she would write the chapters in longhand on a notepad. Then at home, she would type them in her old manual typewriter, and then she would sneak into the local college library to put them in the computer. For two years, she labored day after day and finally finished the story. The book was submitted to 12 publishing houses. All 12 turned her down. After more than a year of knocking on doors, an independent publisher in London, who didn't like the book, agreed to purchase the book after giving it to his daughter to read, and she loved it. So he purchased the book for 1,500 pounds. And in June of 1997, more than four years after Joanne's decision, the publisher printed 1,000 copies for sale. Of those printed, 500 would be sold, 500 would go to libraries. And in February the next year, the book won Children's Book of the Year in Britain. At auction the following year, the book sold for 105,000 pounds to Scholastic, the publisher in the United States. The second book, a sequel to the first, also won Book of the Year two years later. In total, all seven Harry Potter books written by Joanne Kathleen Rowling have sold hundreds of millions of copies all over the world, are translated into 65 different languages, and have been made, as you know, into top-selling movies. In 2007, J.K. Rowling was named the runner-up to Person of the Year by Time Magazine and is estimated to be worth $1 billion. What of those first 1,000 copies of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone published by that independent publisher? Today, they are a sought-after collector's item, and they sell for more than $40,000 apiece. Now, I do not believe that J.K. Rowling has the corner on the market for having a dream, but she did do something very few of us ever do. She stopped pretending, and she stopped procrastinating. I think we pretend, don't you? 
We pretend that someday we'll do what we originally set out to do. We pretend that we're really engaged, but we let even the smallest daily activities take priority over the more important goals in life. We pretend we have a goal when we really haven't committed to it, and we really go on pretending, and days come and go, and life circumstances push us where they want to, and we live in this steady erosion of our hopes and dreams and hang out in the murky middle. If you were to ask me the characteristic that defines those who reach their goals, that defines people who avoid the procrastination trap, and the characteristic that will make all the difference to you and your efforts, it's this, exercise integrity in the moment of choice. It means that once you've decided you will do something, when the moment of choice arrives, act with integrity. You do what you say you will do. If you'll say you'll do something important tomorrow at 10 a.m. in the morning, when 10 a.m. comes, regardless of mood or circumstances, you do what you say you are going to do. When you act with integrity in the moment of choice, you not only move closer to your desired goal, but there's a change, a mental, emotional, and I believe physiological change that happens inside of you. Each time you choose, you become more powerful, more able to act. You have an inner peace that becomes part of you. And a life of this kind of integrity has the most fundamental power and source of personal worth. Stephen Covey says, as you live with this type of integrity, your sense of identity, control, and inner directedness will infuse you with both exhilaration and peace. When I learned this important concept from Dr. Covey as a college student, he taught us that with most things in life, there's a simple principle of stimulus and response. All animals respond to stimulus. They hear a bell and they come running. And we are the same way. When we hear a bell, we may not come running for, for food, but when we hear certain words of hurt, we have feelings of anger. What differentiates us from all other creatures in the animal kingdom, however, is that God has given us a space between stimulus and response. And in that space, in that moment, is where life's battles are won. There and then, we can choose to act differently or respond to that stimulus in a more productive way. In this space between stimulus and response, we gain habits, character, and we can change anything. So exercise integrity in the moment of choice. And when procrastination begins to enter into your work and life and thinking, and when you feel like it's you that's getting in the way of your goals or your business, then remember the things we've talked about today. Be compassionate with your past efforts. Let them go. Follow the feeling of your big desire. Create that big desire inside of you that will outweigh the current emotion and pull of the procrastination trap. Stop pretending that something's going to change unless you do. And remember, there's a space between stimulus and response. Begin today to choose in that space to exercise integrity and watch the strength and power and peace that will come to you in your life. I hope that's been helpful for you today. Thanks for being here today. We'll talk about the next steps to opening your eyes in our next podcast, and I look forward to being with you again soon.